From the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Mark, the producer for Ask Christopher West. This week, Christopher and Wendy are taking a very well-deserved week off after a long period of travel and teaching and all the good things that they do to spread the theology of the body. We'll be back next week with all new episodes of Ask Christopher West. But in the meantime, we didn't want to leave you hanging for the week, so we have something very special to share with you. I had the good fortune of attending the Theology of the Body Institute pilgrimage to Rome in Assisi last fall, which was a truly amazing time. We had masses and talks in many beautiful places, but the crowning jewel of them all was the Sistine Chapel in Vatican City. Christopher was able to give a talk in this beautiful and historic place, and we're going to share a portion of that talk with you now. Up until this point, only Theology of the Body Institute patrons have had access to this material. The full video of this talk and many more are available there. There's a link in the show notes for those who may be interested. And now I encourage you to imagine yourself standing in the Sistine Chapel, hearing Christopher's reflections on the beauty and history of that holy place. If you haven't been there, or even if you have, there's a link in the show notes to a virtual tour through the Vatican Museum website that may be helpful as you listen. Thank you so much for being a part of the show and enjoy the talk. Is this really happening? I, th- I feel like I'm in a dream. John Paul II ordered the restoration of the Sistine Chapel in the 1980s. If we had been here 30 years ago, these frescoes were covered with soot from 500 years of candles and incense. And the the images were very dark. You can find them uh, just by Googling Sistine Chapel before the restoration and then after the restoration, these colors, many people thought that the, re- the artists who did the restoration were, were adding color rather than just removing soot. People couldn't believe how bright the colors were. They thought Michelangelo had some kind of dark mind or like he was trying to convey something, not so much a dark mind, but he was trying to convey something with the darkness of the colors. And then they removed the soot of 500 years and these colors just came alive. Part of the restoration project was removing uh, many of the loincloths that previous popes, uh, this is my understanding, I'm not 100% sure on it, but I think almost all of what appears to be partial nudes now were fully nude when Michelangelo painted, am I right about that? When Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel, so I just got confirmation from the tour guide who knows more than I. Everything was totally nude. Some people didn't like that. They thought it was inappropriate to have all this nakedness in the Sistine Chapel and various popes over various centuries ordered coverings to be painted over the nude figures. Michelangelo, in fact, himself was in quite a tussle with a certain cleric at the Vatican when he was painting the nudes. Well, Michelangelo and I share a sense of humor and Michelangelo would have his revenge on this cleric who didn't like the nudes. Michelangelo used real faces for all of his figures. We didn't know this 
for several, or well, you know, three, four hundred years until the restoration project. But this demon right here, we knew that that face was used as the curator who didn't like the nudity. What we didn't know until the loincloth was removed is that this serpent is taking a large chomp out of his tender places. <laughs> that was Michelangelo's revenge for the prudery of the cleric who didn't understand that nakedness is not in itself shameful, but nakedness for the pure of heart reveals a great divine mystery. Reflections I'm going to share are from the homily that St. John Paul II delivered. I can't even believe I'm saying this, but from right here where I'm standing in 1994. He begins with a line from the Creed, which will prove very important for our reflection. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Today, with our new translation of the Creed, we say all that is visible and invisible. I'm gonna use those words because they coincide with John Paul's catechesis. Visible and invisible. Skip to paragraph, uh, the section that says, begins with number two. The frescoes that we contemplate here, here, here we are. I can't even, I still am pinching myself. The frescoes <laughs> that we contemplate here in the Sistine Chapel introduce us to the world of revelation. To the world of revelation. The truths of our faith speak to us here from all sides. And notice, how are the truths of our faith being communicated? If we had enough time, we could count the number of bodies. It's the human body here that's conveying the truth of our faith. From them, the human genius has drawn its inspiration, committing itself to portraying them in forms of unparalleled beauty. This is why the last judgment, which is here, on this wall in, which, in the front of which I'm standing, this is why the last judgment above all awakens within us the keen desire to profess our faith in God, creator of all things visible and invisible. The thesis statement of John Paul II's Theology of the Body all of my students should know this by heart. It's T.O.B. Audience 19, paragraph four. It's not in your study guide. But this is where John Paul tells us that the body and only the body, the body and only the body is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual, and the divine. Our bodies are not only biological, our bodies are theological. They reveal a divine mystery. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall 
see God. Cardinal Ratzinger, actually he wasn't even a cardinal yet, it's when he was Bishop Ratzinger, wrote a book called Introduction to Christianity. And in there he says, when the Christian says credo, I believe, faith, he says, this proclamation of belief is not just an assent to some list of doctrines. Rather, it's a whole manner of seeing reality that recognizes the visible as a sign of the invisible. And that if we take our deepest longings to the visible, we're working against our own fulfillment. Faith, to say I believe, is to say I recognize all the visible world which culminates in the human body as a sign of something beyond. That's what we are professing in our faith. This is what we are professing in our creed when we say I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Lord, increase our faith. Help us to see these bodies as a sign of the invisible. Turn ahead in your study or in your uh, booklet here to the next page 14. Here, John Paul II is reflecting on this extraordinary Christ figure here. He says, We are in front of an extraordinary Christ. He is endowed with an ancient beauty that is somehow detached from the traditional pictorial model. It's a very different image of Christ than we're used to, isn't it? In the great fresco, he strikingly reveals the whole mystery of his glory linked to the resurrection. This is the resurrected Christ coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So this is Michelangelo's own interpretation of a glorified body. To be gathered here, it was the Easter octave when John Paul gave the homily, but I'm just gonna make it for our, our own gathering. To be gathered here, together, Wednesday, November what? What is it? 14th, thank you, Wednesday, November 14th, 2018, to be gathered here is extremely propit, whatever that word is, exciting, wonderful. More especially, we stand before the glory of Christ's humanity. In fact, he will return in his humanity to judge the living and the dead. Pause. Are we to dread judgment day? Why, because we've been so good? Why are we not to dread judgment day? If we have opened even a crack as we've been saying throughout the week, that crack. If we have opened even a crack to God's mercy, then Judgment Day will be the experience of that mercy entering into that crack and doing its work. 
This is how John Paul II puts it. More especially, we stand before the glory of Christ's humanity. In fact, he will return in his humanity to judge the living and the dead, penetrating the depths of the human conscience. Everything will be revealed. Everything will be revealed. Every dark corner of our hearts, every skewed attitude, every slander we've ever uttered, every sin of any kind will be fully in the light. But at the same time, we will experience the revelation of the power of his redemption if we are open merely a crack. But why just open a crack, my brothers and sisters? Why just open a crack? He's here right now. Let's open wide the doors to Christ here and now. Remember I said earlier in the week, inspired by Francis's nudity, when we, were in an, when we were in Assisi, that the call of the Christian life is to get naked before the Lord, and I, I held out a challenge. Where's something in your life that has been hidden? A wound, a fear, a sin, an attitude, whatever it might be, or a wound that was inflicted upon you, a sin that was committed against you, can we right here, right now, in this glorious, holy place, take up John Paul II's invitation and be not afraid to open wide the doors to Christ so that when he comes again in his glory to judge the living and the dead, we will have no cause of fear. Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? What is faith? John Paul II tells us faith is the openness of the human heart to God's gift. I'm gonna pause for a moment of silence so that we, those who are ready, not just to open a crack, but to open wide the doors to Christ, let us do so without fear. Thank you, Jesus, for your perfect love that casts out all fear. Thank you for making visible the invisible mystery of God, which is love. Thank you for making it visible in your body. Let's look at that final sentence of that paragraph. From the Sistine Chapel, Christ expresses in himself the whole mystery of the visibility of the invisible. Here we are, my brothers and sisters, we who have given our lives to studying and sharing John Paul II's theology of the body. What is theology of the body? It's the mystery of the incarnation. It's the mystery of the invisible, making himself visible in and through the human body. And here we are in the Sistine Chapel where John Paul II says, through the genius of Michelangelo, and there are many artists, other artists whose works are here as well, but Michelangelo is the main one. From the Sistine Chapel, Christ expresses in himself the whole mystery 
of the visibility of the invisible, which is to say the whole mystery of the theology of the body. The frescoes, therefore, are at the core of the theological question. Why does the Catholic Church open this to pilgrims from around the world? I don't know how many pilgrims pass through here in a day. Because the Catholic Church knows this is evangelization. This will take all those with eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts wide open. It will take those seekers on a theological journey. It'll take them to the very core of the theological question. I'm just gonna summarize here where John Paul II says, in the Old Testament, it was forbidden to portray God in an image. Why? This was a lesson to the Israelites about idolatry. Our broken, fallen, wounded hearts are always inclined towards absolutizing the image. Our hearts are always inclined towards idolizing the icon, the very thing that is meant to be a sign that leads beyond to God himself. We're afraid of that leap to the beyond and we wanna manage and control our desires and we, we desperately want to hope and think that the icon itself can satisfy that hunger and thirst in me. And so, the, for, the, the Old Testament law of not having any image of God was actually preparation for the greatest gift that God wanted to give us, the incarnation. Look at what John Paul II says in this next paragraph. The image of God was forbidden in the Old Testament. To make an image of the living God was forbidden, but God himself, listen to this, God himself meets the need of man who nurtures in his heart an ardent desire to be able to see God. This is the deepest desire of the human heart, to see God. But God doesn't want us to build our own image of him. He says, let me show you who I am. Let me show you who I am. It's through the logic and mystery of the incarnation that now artists like Michelangelo can have what John Paul calls this bold audacity to portray even God the Father, right up here in the famous creation scene, to portray even God the Father in human form. Jump ahead to paragraph number five on page 15. Did not Michelangelo draw precise conclusions from Christ's words, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Remember Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. I urge you, take that word enough to prayer. The heart is looking for something. The heart is seeking something. The heart thirsts and yearns and hungers for something. Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough. That's what I'm looking for. Show us the Father. Did not Michelangelo draw precise conclusions from Christ's words? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That was, that's Jesus' response to Philip. Philip, do you not know me? I've been with you all this time and you still do not know that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father? 
Michelangelo had the courage to admire this father with his own eyes at the very moment when he offered his creating fiat. This is God the Father right up here saying fiat, let there be life, let there be man. In the image and likeness of God, he made them male and female, he created them. Now notice at this point, he creates Adam with that reaching, that finger that reaches out so eloquently, but look under the arm of the father and you will see Eve about to spring forth from the very heart of the father as a gift to Adam. Adam was created in the image and likeness of God. This next line is quite significant. While the eternal word, here we're speaking of Christ, we're speaking of the Son within the Trinity from all eternity, while the eternal word is the invisible icon of the Father, right, before the incarnation we couldn't see the Son, nor could we see the Father. The eternal word is the invisible icon of the Father. The man, Adam, is the visible icon of God the Father. Remember what we said the other day about testimony. It is the male body that bears the testimony of God as Father. This does not mean, not even for a moment, that woman does not also bear the image of God but she reveals something different about the mystery of God than the man does. And we need male and female together to have the revelation complete. Michelangelo strove in every way to restore Adam's presence, his corporeity, the features of ancient beauty. And then, John Paul II says, with great daring, Michelangelo even transferred this visible and corporal beauty to the creator himself. Here we are probably witnesses to an extraordinary piece of artistic audacity, since it is impossible to impose the likeness proper to man on the invisible God. Would this not even be blasphemous, John Paul asks? And yet, in light of the logic of incarnation, the Word made flesh, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, we could say perhaps it borders on blasphemy to portray God the Father in human form. But if we are in line with the logic of the incarnation, we can be bold and daring enough even to do it. And here we experience, through the incarnation, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We experience what John Paul II, in keeping with the tradition of the church, calls the kenosis of God. Kenosis means total emptying. Through the incarnation, God has totally poured himself out. God has experienced in the incarnation a, a, a humiliation, not in a negative sense, but the infinite, eternal, immortal God became, became this tiny embryo in the womb of Mary. This is the kenosis of God. But kenosis does not just indicate an outpouring, but it's poured out into something. The fullness of God was poured out, and who opened to receive it? 
Mary. This is the theology of a woman's body to open and receive the kenosis of God. Astounding. John Paul says, this brings the body to consummation. What does? The incarnation, the outpouring of God in Christ's male body and the receiving of the outpouring of God in Mary's female body. This brings the body to consummation, he says. Such a consummation has forcefully entered the tradition of the Eastern Church in her icons. The body is certainly the kenosis of God. Skip down to the last two lines. Here we see that great humility of the body that we were talking about. Because Christ in embracing the body also embraced the humiliation that the body endures in his passion and death. The great humility of the body must be expressed. It must be expressed so that what is divine can be revealed. It is also true that God is the source of the integral beauty of the body. So here, John Paul is speaking about what I was saying earlier, that the body must go through that humiliation, suffering and death in order to pass over and come out the, so the other side in a glorified or integrally beautiful form. And here we get to the key paragraph. It seems that Michelangelo in his own way allowed himself to be guided by the evocative words of the book of Genesis, which as regards the creation of the human being, male and female, reveals the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Michelangelo allowed himself to be guided by those evocative words when he painted these naked bodies. What is the difference between the naked bodies here and the naked bodies in pornography? The naked bodies of pornography are portrayed in such a way to obscure the dignity and glory of the human person. But the naked bodies here are portrayed in such a way as to reveal the glory and dignity of the human person. The problem with pornography is not that it portrays naked bodies. Obviously, the Sistine Chapel portrays naked bodies. How many artistic works of naked bodies have we seen over the last few days here in Rome? The problem with pornography is the manner in which it portrays the naked body. How do we overcome the evil of pornography? Not by saying the naked body is evil, it is not. But by showing the true glory, dignity, and purpose of the naked human body. This is Michelangelo's great gift to Christendom. And so John Paul II concludes, the Sistine Chapel is precisely, if one may say so, the sanctuary of the theology of the human body. My brothers and sisters, welcome to the sanctuary of the theology of the human body. I close here. The next full paragraph, top of page 16. 
If we are dazzled as we contemplate the last judgment by its splendor and its terror, notice the terror of these bodies falling into hell. Notice the splendor of these bodies rising to glory. If we are dazzled as we contemplate the last judgment by its splendor and its terror, admiring on the one hand the glorified bodies and on the other, we recognize those condemned to eternal damnation. We understand too that the whole composition is deeply penetrated by a unique light and by a single artistic logic. What is it? We believe in one God, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. On the basis of this logic, the visible and the invisible, and in the context of the light that comes from God, the human body also keeps its splendor and its dignity. However, if the human body is removed from this dimension, what dimension? The revelation of the holy, the revelation of the divine. If it is removed from this dimension, it becomes in some way an object which depreciates very easily since only before the eyes of God can the human body remain naked and unclothed and keep its splendor and its beauty intact. My brothers and sisters, what is our task? The task at this moment of history I propose is that we reclaim the body in this dimension. What is at stake if we do not? precisely what Michelangelo depicts. Heaven or hell, this is what is at stake. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. The opposite is also true. Those who are not pure of heart will not see God. We are passing through a tremendous trial. Blood was shed in St. Peter's Square right out here by St. John Paul II, who was elected right here to be the Pope who gave us the answer to the crisis of our times. And Mary promised that though the church would pass through this dark, dark trial, in the end my Immaculate Heart will triumph. What is the triumph of the Immaculate Heart? It's the triumph of purity of heart. What is purity of heart? John Paul II says, it is the glory of God in the human body. What will triumph when Mary's heart triumphs? The glory of God in the human body. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. St. John Paul II. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes. Music